Um, one, of, one of the big concepts that I really want us to get as, at the foundation of our community is that when one of us goes to minister, we are representing the table and we are being an apostolic community. And uh, we're not building a church that gathers on a Sunday to a pastor. We're building a people who are apostolic, ascent people. And so when I travel, when Katya travels, when Jeff or Ash, whoever travels and goes and does stuff um, for the kingdom, when you go to work, you're being apostolic. Um, and so I want us to get that into our head that everything we do is an extension of this community is for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, and to our account as the community. Um, it was really great. One of the things I said in that prophetic word was I said, I think it may, there's something connected to 20 years. And that guy was 20 years old, a year later, who then said, you're dead to me, and I'm dead to you. And it was just amazing to see how God broke in. Great. You should be in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 18. If you haven't found it by now, give up. <laughs> It says this, Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad, who was a prophet, a seer, to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jezebite. And so David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. And while Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Good idea at that point. Then um, David approached, and when Aruna looked at him and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. And David said to him, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. And Aruna said to David, No, 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 you take it. Let, it, my, let my Lord, the king, do whatever pleases him. Look, I'll give you the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give all of this. But the king, David, replied to Aruna, saying, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David put Aruna, so David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings um, and fellowship offerings. Um, it goes on to say, He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offerings. And the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. And at that time, when David saw the Lord and answered him on the threshing floor of Arena the Jezebite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at the time on the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. I want us to talk a little bit about worship and what that looks like for us as a community and what we want to engage in as the people of God and what I believe is actually a biblical framework for it. There's something about Israel's journeys with God. There's something about the way God seems to interact with people and indeed not just the people of Israel, any nationality, any group uh, that requires or is uh, at the DNA of humanity to worship. We all worship something or someone. Um, it doesn't matter what you uh, say or do, there is this inbuilt desire to worship. And throughout biblical history, we see that worship most often as the people of Israel was uh, 
expressed corporately. It was not just an individual thing. I always love it when people tell me, oh, I just worship God individually. No, no, you can't do that. <laughs> worship requires the house of God. It requires the people of God to gather together. There has to be a response uh, to him, both corporately and individually. Now, I've grown up in church, and so I, I get the gig. I've been going to church since before I was born. Um, and so I have grown up in worship context all the time and, and I love worship. I've been through a number of worship movements. I was there when Hillsong became popular. I was there when the Vineyard Worship um, became popular. I was there when we, the song that we just sang, Jesus Holy and Anointed, when I, I was there. Um, and I could go back to sing some songs that will give you a blast in the past and make you think like, oh my gosh, how old is that guy really? <laughs> And so I've grown up in worship movements and I've seen some incredible things, but I, I fear that in our current state, where we are at as the people of God on the earth today, particularly in America, particularly in the West, is that we've reduced worship to our preferred genre of music rather than a posture of heart. This is going to get happy, I promise. <laughs> But I just want us to make sure that how we orientate ourselves and how we orientate our hearts in corporate worship. So I want to just be very clear. I believe everything is worship. Work is worship. Fun is worship. Worship doesn't just happen when we gather. Worship happens when you serve your family. Worship happens when you walk in integrity. Worship is the, the Christian life. Everything is worship. However, I want us to focus in a little bit around corporate worship, if that's okay. And the thing about corporate worship is that, that I've noticed a, a trend at the moment, particularly in, in our generation, that reduces worship to when I feel like it or to when my preferred song is on. There are two times you worship God, when you feel like it and when you don't. That, that, that's, that's how it works in Scripture. And I'm gonna, I want to... I wanna, unpack some of this because I believe God wants to restore the role of sacrificing worship again. And I'm not talking about performance-orientated sacrifice. I'm talking about gratefulness at the overflow of his beauty. And I hope I'm going to build a case for you in this. One of the things I find fascinating, particularly in um, Exodus, is while Moses is um, on a mountain called Sinai inquiring of the Lord, which, by the way, God invited all of the people of Israel into, we see that Aaron is overcome by the consensus and the demands of the people to worship something that they can see, and so he builds a calf according to uh, a golden calf, according to the senses of the people, according to the, the demand of the people, according to the expectation of the people. And the thing about building a, a golden calf, the thing about creating worship that is people-orientated is you'll always find that it will become idolatry. <laughs> and secondly, that that idolatry will be reflective of the very culture they're in and around. You see, the golden calf was one of the gods that the people of Egypt worshipped. Mm -hmm. And so the very culture that they were set free from, the very culture that they moved into the desert place in order to pursue the promise, suddenly became the god that they served. Mm -hmm. Because worship transcends culture, it transcends genre, it transcends comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, Julian. Good point. <laughs> 
And whenever we elevate the desires of individuality over that of the glory of God, we miss something. And so I want to just take you very quickly on a journey around temple theology to help us understand what this looks like. Because I believe that God is looking for a temple. He's looking for a landing spot. I believe that God wants our worship to be so um, extravagant in nature that people get saved as a result. And so you see the first temple that's created is the the Garden of Eden. The language that is used, the way we understand the imagery in Eden speaks of a temple. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the connecting point of God's purposes, his government, his authority, his gracious rule and reign as expressed in heaven on earth. I just want to say to you, God's original intent is still his intent. That heaven will cover the earth, that there'll be nothing that is separated from his gracious rule and reign. And then we see Moses' temple, and Moses' temple has all these sacrifices, all these rules, regulations that we have to engage in before we can get into the Holy of Holies, and then only one person gets to go in. Because as they enter into the Holy of Holies, that literally becomes the place that heaven and earth meet. Aren't you glad that you now carry the Holy of Holies in your person because of the work of the cross? You're a walking ark of the covenant. I mean, we can go home at that point. (laughs) Then we see David's tent, and David's tent is this movable, flappable tent that seems to have the glory on display, and everyone goes up to Mount Moriah to worship him there. And then we see Solomon's temple again established. Solomon's temple then gets destroyed. And what's incredible is post-Solomon's temple, when we get to Jesus' time, we have a temple that is built in Jerusalem, but no presence in the temple. We have form, but no presence and no power. And so Jesus in John chapter 8 says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He was literally saying, this temple is void of presence and of life. You must come to me, the new living temple, the fulfillment of all of Israel's promises. I am now the meeting point of heaven and earth, is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 8. But what's even more beautiful is he says, when you come and drink from me, out of you will flow rivers of living water. You then become the temple. You become the meeting point of heaven and earth. I hope you're getting happy because this is Shika bazooka, right? It means that you now become the very life force of heaven wherever you go because the river is not meant to be a dam. It's meant to be a gushing, flowing forth river that the further away it gets from the temple, the more powerful and more fruitful it becomes. We're all trying to get into church, and God's like going, no, no, let me out. (laughs) And so we see that God's desire, but there's not just the individual temple that we now become. The Bible says in Ephesians that you now are God's living temple, being put together, living stones, so that there's, this is so good, there's one reason, glory. So that his glory, his goodness, his purpose is fulfilled. Whenever you see the glory of God in the New Testament, you see Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's essence, goodness and glory. In other words, the aim of our worship is a fully developed 
Jesus-looking bride. The reason we gather together to worship is not just to do the warm-up act for the preach. We worship not only because he's worthy, but because in the beholding of him, we become like him. And I love this particular context of David. There's been a curse that's been put out on the land because David was tempted by the devil. Incidentally, in one chronicles just a little bit earlier, you see that it says that Satan came to tempt the, uh, um, David. It's the first time we even see the word Satan in the Bible up until that point, and uh, described that way. And David is duped into thinking that if he can count how many men of battle there are, he would have a place of security in the strength of his flesh and his own might. And sometimes we can think that our key to breakthrough is what we bring to God. When actually it's about God's intervention in us, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Uh, We can have glitz, glamour, smoke machines, PowerPoint, you name it, all doing the stuff. We can do a little regular check of who's gathering on a Sunday, but ultimately it's not going to be what we can achieve through the arm of our ability and everything to do with his goodness on display in us as a community. And so we see this curse is brought on, on the land. And so David is now trying to figure out what to do. And he remembers something about Moriah. And he goes up to Mount Moriah. How much time do I have? I just want to make sure I'm good because I need to fast forward. Okay. So he goes up to Mount Moriah and he sees this threshing floor and the Lord tells him to buy that. Now, Mount Moriah is a very important place in Jewish understanding. It's the place where um, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Remember that? And Moriah, actually, there are two meanings for Moriah in the original Hebrew. The first meaning, and if you do simply the word study, it means the place of seeing or the place of revelation. Um, And the writer, Moses, when he's talking about Moriah, says it is the place where God provides. And so we see this concept of God's revelation coming with God's provision on Mount Moriah. Okay? And, and you'll see that Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac at Mount Moriah. And I don't know if you've ever read that story, but people seem to very glibly read that story and think, ah, oh, Abraham had to sacrifice his son. Not a problem. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, he gave that by faith. I mean, I, when I read it, I'm like, what on earth is going on here? This doesn't make sense. And the reason why, actually, when, when Abraham responds, he seems so glib about it. He goes, yeah, I'll go ahead and sacrifice my son, it's because every single culture around him was dominated by the understanding that sooner or later, whichever God you serve was going to ask you to sacrifice the most important thing, most important person in your family, which is your son, your legacy. And so he understood at some stage God's going to do that. But the aim of what God was doing on Mount Moriah for Abraham was not to test his faith concerning his ability to sacrifice, but was to bring his faith into a new place of revelation. Because the revelation that he was about to get was not that God simply demands all, but that God not only demands all, but he's the God who provides all. 
You see, salvation in the Christian world very often is clouded with religion that it's demand, demand, demand. You must give more, you must sacrifice more, you must do more. But the God who demands everything is also the God who provides everything. And then we see this next moment, and I'm fast-forwarding there, another many more moments on Moriah, the place of seeing, the place of provision. And we get to this point, the threshing floor, where actually this threshing floor, this Mount Moriah moment that is happening here, is going to be the very place that God is going to establish his temple for Israel to see his glory. And there's another moment that happens on this place called Mount Moriah, and that's the crucifixion. The place where Jesus dies. The place where God demands the life of a perfect human being. Let me rephrase that. Where the price of sin demands the life of perfection. And God in his kindness gets in to the muck and mire and dirt of humanity. Clothes himself with flesh and he says, I'm perfect. So I will get on the cross and die. The God who demands all is the God who provides all at Moriah. And so we see this incredible moment of crucifixion, but I want us to come right back to this David moment because there's something prophetic happening here. We see that David says to Arima, I will not offer a sacrifice unless it costs me something. And he goes to the threshing floor, now the threshing floor, oh my gosh, the threshing floor. How many of you have ever received a word about God's going to take you onto the threshing floor and gone, yippee, <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> the threshing floor is the place of, of, of wheat being crushed so that what's inside of it is exposed and it's just breaking opening, as it were, and that, that removes the chaff um, and reveals the kernel of wheat that is used to sustain. And the beautiful thing about the gospel, friends, is that as we approach Jesus in worship, not only is he now our threshing floor, the, the rock that we are crushed upon, the place where we get to be broken open. But he is the very one who was broken open for us. You see, my worship's not connected to the pain that I need to suffer in order to get close to God. My worship is connected to Jesus and what he went through. So I now break open my life as a voluntary offering, as a voluntary sacrifice. Not one that is motivated to get the approval of God. Not one that is motivated to try and get my breakthrough. Not one that is motivated to just volunteer for pain. If you're volunteering for pain, there's a problem. <laughs> if you're volunteering, listen, if you do not understand a theology of suffering deeply rooted and connected to the goodness of God, all it is is self-harm. And Jesus is the weak, unless the weak falls into the ground. He is broken out, open, as it were, on the threshing floor at Golgotha. So that you and I now enter into the sacrifice that he has made. 
Listen, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He is the God who not only demands the sacrifice, but provides the sacrifice. And salvation means you are caught up mystically into the breaking of Jesus upon the threshing floor before God. So that you and I offer not what is the thing that we can give, but the thing that Jesus has given for us as his whole life was broken open before him. And the reason I want to lay this foundation is because Jesus has provided the sacrifice, but there is a partnership that we bring in our worship in our own sacrifice. You see, the threshing floor is less about the pain that we sometimes attach. I've only ever heard negative sermons about threshing floors. (laughs) But this is not what the Bible is talking simply about here. This is not the prophetic illusion that, that we're to get out of this. You see, This threshing floor became the place that the temple was going to be built. This threshing floor literally became the place where heaven and earth now met. The point is this, friends, that when we come and we break open our life in worship, Mm -hmm. it is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. And I want to just say that so often we have become focused on the externals of worship that we've missed the breaking open of our affection to him. See, the, the breaking that we now experience in worship, the breaking open as it were on the threshing floor, is not one of pain or even circumstantial pain it's one of aligning our hearts with Jesus. So that out of the response of his brokenness on the cross, we pour out our affection in vulnerability, in brokenness, so that everything is transformed. And the thing about the kind of worship that we see in the Bible is it's not restrained, it's not contained, it's not polite, it's not everyone in their rows. It's the extravagant, overwhelming gratitude towards God that we cannot help but pour it out. It's always fascinating to me that the issue of sacrifice throughout scripture is central to how we worship. And so the Egyptians say to the people of God, hey, not a problem, you can leave Egypt, just leave your livestock behind. Because they knew that actually worship was connected to sacrifice, they needed livestock in order to sacrifice. And Moses said, no, no, we are not going to the desert without our ability to worship. You see the moment on, on um, Mount Carmel where Elijah 
is establishing an altar, 12 stones and some wood, and he puts a sacrifice on it, and then he begins to pour water on it. And we often read that story and we think the sacrifice was the cow that they put on that altar. It's not. The sacrifice after three years is that there was no water. And so he takes some water. So you can just imagine everyone, there's no water, there's been no rain, no precipitation, no, no nothing. And everyone's looking, you are taking 12 jugs of precious commodity that we need and you're pouring it over that altar. I wonder if we've made worship about what we get out of it rather than what we get to bring yeah. to him. Yeah. You see, I, 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 I'm like a grace preacher. I, people have accused me of being hyper-grace, which basically just means that I believe that God's grace is super abundant, over the top, <laughs> hyper-hyper, is the only way I can describe it. And I'm guilty. <laughs> I believe God's grace. If you, if you know me, you know that I need the hyper grace of God <laughs> in order to do anything that I'm doing. <laughs> but I wonder if in some of our graceful context we've misunderstood that grace is meant to be the motivating factor for yes. sacrifice. Yes. It's because Jesus was broken open on the threshing floor because I'm in him that I get to break open my life and bring my sacrifice. And the thing about sacrifice no matter how you get around it, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It means you worship through the pain. It means you worship through the delay. It means you worship through the extravagant provision he might give you. It means you worship with your money. It means you worship with your body. Let's just stop there for a moment. I, I love it when I see people, forgive me, I'm, I'm trying not to be rude, but I'm South African. <laughs> I love it when people are standing in worship like this. I'm like, sweet Jesus, are you even a Christian? <laughs> and I'm not trying to be cheeky, but worship requires the use of our body. It requires the use of our voice. It requires the use of our hands. You just need to look throughout scripture, there's extravagant outpouring. I want to beseech us as a community. Let's not allow the musicians to determine how we respond in worship to God. You know, one of the things that this church right at the inception of it, had to fight for is around worship. Mm -hmm. uh, our good friend Ella Roselt, who we love and um, who's now in heaven, had literally just agreed, uh, she's an amazing worship leader, the first song that we sang was a song that she wrote out of a prophetic encounter, out of a prophetic spontaneous worship time. Um, and she was going to come and join us in Boston. She was moving from South Africa, um, and she uh, got cancer and passed away before she could even move. Yeah. And so we knew one of the foundations of this church would be around worship. And we knew there was some warfare over it. And the reason I believe is because ultimately worship is not just about us enjoying God, although that's really good, by the way. 
the chief end of man is to worship God and enjoy him forever. Our sacrifices result in the enjoyment of God. Right? That's that's what we believe. Um, And and we knew that there was going to be this dynamic of of warfare over worship. And it wasn't just about us individually. It wasn't just about us corporately. God is going to take us into a whole other level of corporate worship. I believe that we're going to see extravagant outpouring of worship. Um, Guys, the reason I don't mind how badly tone deaf I am, how I always get the wrong notes, how, you know, so, I mean, I don't have rhythm, although I can dance, I just want to say. (laughs) Like, irrespective of all of those things, I don't care because my worship is not to make you feel comfortable. It's an offering to the one that I love. Some of you think worship is personality dependent. The Bible commands us to shout to the Lord. Praise is not a noun, it's an action. When we say praise the Lord, it doesn't mean you go, oh, that's lovely. (laughs) It requires us to engage our body, our senses. But ultimately, the reason we want to be a worshipping community is because worship is deeply and profoundly connected to mission. You see, in Acts chapter 15, the, the Apostle James connects worship to the threshing floor moment when he says to everyone as they're fighting about whether Gentiles can come in or not, when they're fighting about nations coming together, he says, no, 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 this dynamic of worship has to do with restoring David's fallen tent. Where did it start? started in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 on the threshing floor. That's where worship movement began. That God says, I'm going to restore. And the reason he says I'm going to restore in Acts chapter 15 and verse um, 17, well, we'll go from verse 16, and it says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind, it literally talks about the Gentiles, it talks about in Amos, Edom actually, which is a word given to every nation, all the Gentiles, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. He's literally saying, James is saying, this issue of whether Gentiles, those outside the covenant promises of God, and Israel, who were known to be the true worshippers of the true God, this issue of them coming together Um, is about worship and it's about the restoration of worship because when we understand that worship is the fuel of mission that as we behold him we cannot help but invite others into that moment that this actually was the aim of the threshing floor moment that David had this actually was the aim of the tabernacle that he built so that all nations will come to the rising of the light of Israel. And Jesus is that light. The reason why we're going to have corporate worship that's going to be loud, that's going to be extravagant, that's going to be unpredictable, that's not going to follow form, is not because we're just trying to be cool. It is because heaven is dominated by worship. 
and it has been dominated by worship from eons past and it will be dominated by worship into eons future. And that dynamic comes together in his temple, the church, for the sake of nations to come. God wants us to restore the tabernacle of David, not in some weird Jewish kind of way where we simply, you know, find ourselves blowing shofars. All of those things are great if you're into that, but that's not the point. (laughs) The point is it's only in the context of worship that God's government is established. You see, David did not make a governmental decision outside of worshipping God and inquiring in his presence. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is that the nations, the lost, every tribe, every tongue gets to come in to an encounter of God. And the table, I want to invite you into extravagant worship. The kind of worship that makes your body move. The kind of worship that's not moved by whether it's white boy rock or pumping black Pentecostal music, which I prefer. (laughs) That irrespective of music or pulpit, our posture is to bring a sacrifice of worship. A sacrifice in our love and our affection, that we break it open like the threshing floor moment. That we break open, as you already do so well, our wallets. That we break open our affection. That we break open our lives to each other and before him in worship. Mm-hmm. The reason why God wants to restore the tabernacle of David is because it establishes his government on the earth. The Bible says he's enthroned on the praises of his people. In other words, his throne is established in that context. Secondly, the reason why God wants to restore worship to us in a way that's extravagant and sacrificially driven is because when we do, his manifested presence comes. I want you to know that there is a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifested presence of God. God is everywhere all the time. But there's something beautiful about when his people come together that manifests his presence. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus will come and sing in the midst of his brethren when we worship him extravagantly. Last thing I want to just quickly say about this and then we're going to respond in worship. John Piper makes the statement, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of mission. I believe that God is not governed by geography. God does not choose a specific people. 
apart from their hunger. It's not like he's going, oh, I prefer South Africans to Americans, so I'm going to bless South Africa, not the Americans. That's not how it works for God. God has chosen all of humanity to find themselves in Christ. But I do believe God is looking for communities as landing spots for his glory that become beacons of worship-fueled mission. And I believe the table is to be one of those. And when people walk in this place, they go, surely God is in this place. And when we bring our sacrifice to him, his manifested presence is demonstrated. When we break open our affection to him, he's attracted to that in his glory so that we are being transformed into the very image that we are beholding. And my plea this morning to you as the people of God is to worship and to sacrifice two times when you feel like it and when you don't. I wish I had a whole lot more time to talk about warfare and worship, but I don't. But what we are going to do right now is I want to just break something over us because I feel like as a community we get to hear the resonance of our voice in this particular building which I feel like sometimes stops us from the extravagance of breaking open our heart. Mm -hmm. I want to give you permission to sound really bad. (laughs) I want to give you, because for some of you, your sacrifice is going to be your image or your security. For some of you, your sacrifice is going to be your shyness. For some of you, sacrifice might be money. For some of you, sacrifice might be doing something in worship. Like, I don't know, I once had to pick up a flag. Flag waving's not my ministry, you know. (laughs) Once upon a time, I had to do that. It wasn't fun for me, but it broke something. (laughs) I feel like some of you are like, "Mm mm-hmm. That's that's what I need to do. Love, do you want to come up so long? Um, But I want to invite you right now to break open your heart on the threshing floor, the rock as it were, called Jesus. Because our sacrifice comes in him and through him, for him and by him. You hear in my heart, this is not meant to be a work-driven thing. It has to be a response thing. Like, we didn't move half across the way of the world because we thought it was a good idea. It was in response to his goodness. Many of you didn't move from all over to get to the table because you thought, oh, that's a great idea. We like Jilin and Katya. I'm glad you do, but it's not about us. It's about a life of worship that breaks open our heart in sacrifice. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.